Jane Doe's case out of Lake County fizzled pretty quickly with no viable threads for investigators to pull and no leads coming in. Through the years, the sheriff's department would validate the case file, basically checking every so often that it was still in the system and an open case, but they didn't have anything new to work with. And all this time, Jane Doe's bones remained at the CA Pound Human Identification Lab, stored for the day when technology would hopefully catch up to desperate need. And as it is wont to do, technology stepped up here big time. Major advances in DNA technology around 2010 enabled more and different types of testing. It was during some of this testing that Detective Tamara Dale would learn more about Jane Doe. When her remains were re-examined by a former student of Dr. Maples, it was learned that some incorrect evaluations had been made on Jane Doe back in 1988. Incorrect evaluations that, while understandable given what was understood by science at the time, the correct information would give the case an entirely different backstory, at least from the perspective of victimology. Dr. Maples had observed pelvic pitting related to female hormones. The osteological examination done in more recent years noted this bone pitting and said, quote, These areas of bone resorption are correlated with parity in females and are thought to be the result of the hormones estrogen and recombinant relaxin, a peptide hormone that induces ripening of the cervix prior to childbirth. Her bones were also remeasured and assessed, and the report notes, quote, The preponderance of non-metric traits suggests that the decedent is a male. The final summary of the report reads as follows. The remains are male, of primarily European ancestry, who most likely would have self-classified as white. He was in his middle 20s to early 30s at the time of his death. His stature is estimated at approximately 5'9 There is no evidence of perimortem bony trauma to the skeleton, this case was previously examined in 1988. At the time, the sex was assessed as a robust female. However, skeletal morphology strongly suggests that the decedent is a male. The female clothing and breast implants found at the scene in 1988 may indicate that the decedent was in the process of or had undergone gender reassignment. Evidence of cosmetic rhinoplasty is also noted. There was also testing that confirmed that Jane Doe had XY chromosomes, which play a vital role in the sexual development of a male. What Dr. Maples had originally evaluated as pelvic pitting attributed to childbirth was more likely due to hormone replacement therapy during gender transition. Our Jane Doe was born a biological male, but at the time of her death, she apparently identified as a transgender female. Now, obviously, this was a stunning development to law enforcement. It painted an entirely different picture of who their victim was and what might have occurred back in 1988. It totally changes the victimology. All the reports call the person a female. If you're getting all that information, it can influence you. Dr. Michael Warren, Maple's student who re-examined Jane Doe, said this to Orlando Sentinel reporter Crystal Hayes. Plus, he said, the person was wearing women's attire and had breast implants. The transgender community was much smaller back then, so it wasn't something that you'd expect. The moment we pulled out the skeleton and looked at it, I said, whoa, this is a guy. We did all the measurements and ran statistics on the bones and everything was screaming this was a biological male. 
When we got back the DNA that confirmed it, we were stunned. The Orlando Sentinel article written by Crystal Hayes, dated November 15, 2015, also went on to quote the original investigator when he learned of this new development. Wow, that's definitely a shock, said Lake County Sheriff's Investigator Ray Morrison, who headed the case before retiring in 2002 and moving to Alabama. But thinking about it now, I remember she was kind of tall for a female. With this new development came a new name, and the Jane Doe found in Claremont, Florida, was rechristened Julie Doe by the forensic students who re-examined her skeleton. The name was a shout-out to the 1995 film Tu Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything, Julie Newmar, which, by the way, is a fantastic movie, and if you haven't seen it, you should. It was a sweet gesture, but one that slightly overlooks the fact that the characters in that movie were drag queens on a cross-country trip. Drag queens and transgender individuals are not the same. Looking at this through the lens of someone living in 1988 when Julie Doe was killed, I suspect that even less people would understand the difference. But it's a mistake that's a bit harder to overlook now. The Tu Wong Fu story itself does have the drag queens running into all sorts of people in parts of the country who were, shall we say, less understanding of alternative lifestyles. So while Julie Doe's renaming story isn't exactly on the nose, the spirit in which it was done would probably have been appreciated by her. And some of the incidents depicted in the movie might have felt familiar to Julie Doe in 1988. In 2018, Julie Doe's skull was sent to the Florida Institute of Forensic Anthropology and Applied Science at the University of South Florida for isotope testing. High-tech testing testing on human remains has narrowed down the search field in a 30-year-old cold case. Investigative reporter Carla Ray first told you about the isotope testing being done to narrow down where an unidentified person lived before being found dead in Lake County. And she just got her hands on the results, and Carla, this is a great lead, but this is still going to be a tough case to solve. Yeah, the analysis returns results that look like this, showing the likelihood that someone was raised in different regions of the U.S. based on the makeup of the food and water they consumed throughout their life. In this cold case, there was a very obvious match. It matched to South Florida, but there are dozens of missing person cases just in this small portion of the state. This binder on Lake County Sergeant Tamara Dale's desk contains the file of a 30-year-old cold case she's made it her mission to solve. As a person, I feel like she deserves a break. It's time for her to have a break to finally be identified and uh, taken home to wherever her family is. The person found along the south side of County Road 474 in 1988 is known only as Julie Doe, a play on the traditional names of John or Jane. After testing proved the woman found here was actually born male and likely going through transition when she died. I feel like she probably didn't have a very easy life, uh, her lifestyle being transgender in the 1980s. And obviously, I don't think she had a very easy death either. I think she died alone, possibly a victim of a homicide. And now Dale has another major clue to add to the pile. After forensic researchers in this University of South Florida lab finished a process called isotope analysis to narrow down where the doe grew up and lived before death. I never would have thought in criminal justice I would be working with scientists and um, 
to, to solve a case. In this case, the analysis pinpointed South Florida. And though that narrows things down, nine investigates found there are dozens of missing persons cases on file from these 22 counties reported in the five-year time period before the remains were found. There's a lot of them, but there's not as many in South Florida as there are in the world here in the country. Dale has put out a be on the lookout to urge agencies in South Florida to cross-check their own cold cases, hoping that with a new lead from science, she can close this one for good. Right now, yes, I, I think that this is the best chance we have because it's a 30-year-old case. Um, cases like this can get lost to time. Cold cases are getting solved. This is the direction it's going. Now, Dale admits, though, that there is still a chance that there will not be any missing persons who match the description of Julie Doe. But again, she says this is the best clue they have so far. We'll keep you posted. In studio, Carla Ray, Channel 9, Eyewitness News. Guys, we know that context matters. And there's not another case in the world that illustrates that fact more clearly than the case of Julie Doe. There are a lot of factors that we consider when examining a cold case, and certainly victimology is pivotal in original and re-examinations of decades-old cases. What we now know is that Julie Doe was a transgender female living as such in Florida in 1988. Based on isotope testing, she may have been from South Florida. To find a transgender woman living in or around Claremont, Florida, would have been surprising to anyone who lived around there during that time frame. All right, so you remember Claremont from that particular time? Yes, um, I remember it because somehow I ended up giving a Tupperware party out in that area. We lived in um, um, Lockhart at the time, so I had a, an opportunity to give a Tupperware party in Claremont. And it was a very, um, uh, like, a, mom stays home with the kids, dad goes out, cooks, and they were very bigoted people. And I felt real uncomfortable, but I ended up giving three parties out in that area. But you know how who I was at the time, and it was a totally different person than they were, so it was okay. The parties were good, but they were kind of like, you know, like Ozzie and Harriet kind of families, you know yeah. what I mean? But, but, you know, I don't like to call people names or do slurs, but they were definitely, um, they definitely made some very major racial slurs. Um, so it was an odd group. I felt like I was in another area, you know, another time yeah. zone. It was not good at all. Back then, in the 70s and 80s, small towns were cl clicky. Yeah. We, I know because of the small town we lived in. It was very clicky, and nobody messed with anybody, and well, everybody knew about everything. I immediately get a red flag when when one person says that I was it was her I was trying to bear, get buy a beer from, and the, other, the girl says, oh, that didn't happen. It wasn't me. But she fits the description of what the lady said. So someone's lying. Now, sometimes people lie. Let's remember my case with um, Arnold Holmes. Um, we don't know that he had anything to do with anything that was going on there, but we know there's a gun missing from the scene, and he insists it wasn't him. Some people lie for stupid reasons. Yeah, they get attention, too, yeah, sometimes. For, or just because they lie, or you know? Be, yeah, well, not, usually somebody like that, if they have a, have their own fears... Yeah, don't want to get in I trouble for yeah, something or, yeah, you know. Right. Certainly when it involves police, you know, asking you questions, people aren't honest often, I'm certain, <laughs> of that, about things that matter and don't matter. And that's causes, yeah. that muddies the water on cases. If, you, if you're going to talk to police, it's probably a good idea not to lie. Because as soon as you lie, even if you've not done anything, you are going to now be looked at as, why did you lie? Because that's true. So that causes a problem right there. Yes, and as far as the hometown d dynamics back then, Florida is the one of the 
best places and worst places to do this type of uh, coal crime this far distance away because Florida has grown dramatically um, from being a, one way to this way yeah. that they are today. So, I mean, they've come a long way. I'm going to have to... Um, as far as prejudice and as far as a yeah. lot of other things. Yeah. I mean, this was... Your, There's definitely been some, let's just say, real redneck areas in Florida my whole life. Freaking loop. I absolutely remember um, oh, yes. walking at... When I was a driving age, so I must have been, you know, 18, 19, whatever, at the at that corner where um, by Lockhart Elementary and that little um, and seeing the KKK yeah, marching, oh, yeah, right in front of my car, the KKK in the regalia walking in the crosswalk yeah. right in front of our car. Yes, and so, they were very active in the area. Yeah, but the thing is too is. Um, uh, uh, so many changes have happened since then, and, right. and it's we've much grown. More it's much more diverse. Yes, yeah. much more diverse right now. But what, back then, it was very small little towns, and they and they would never have turned anybody in. No. And the thing is, I was I was pleasantly surprised when I put the information out on Facebook yesterday to try to get some leads. One of the um, people that responded said, um, "I have a daughter that's transgender, and this you know hurts my heart." And I thought, oh, wow. "That's wonderful." Yeah. yeah. Not wonderful, but you know what I mean. Yeah, you would have never yes. uh, expected to hear that out of Claremont. No, uh, 30, uh, 30 plus years, years ago. ago. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. No, that's why I'm saying the the the, the state and like this area, this um, middle area of the state, central has Florida, definitely yeah. central Florida has definitely changed. Yeah. Miami would have been up ahead of us, uh, you know. Always. Jacksonville right. ahead of us with the college charts out, but the middle of the state was always hick. And you know, if yeah. you were an outsider, you were an outsider. Yeah. I mean, I've actually and there's gone still into a restaurant of Florida that are like that. That's right. Yeah. I actually went into a restaurant um, with a um, African American woman and another uh, white woman, and we were kicked out because they wouldn't let her sit in there. And this was when right was in that? Rosemont area. Oh my God. Yes. Um, so uh, we got kicked out, and we couldn't what stay there. What year was this? This was when. So I would say uh, the person that I'm talking about was about 16 or 17 at the time, and. Um, the girl was a friend so the black girl was a friend so it would be when you were guys were in junior high school or high school Jeez. that's not very long ago no and and it so that's why I'm trying to say there were people that really looked down on you in these small towns uh, for having a, a company with uh, a black person yeah there's a Which whole dynamic of uh, with this case that would be um, troubling if the perpetrator was in the middle of a sex act and learned that the person that they were with was transgender and they did not know that. Transgender wasn't even a word that was used widely or often in 1988. To be living as a transgender woman in 1988? Well, that gives you a bit of insight into who Julie Doe really was. Her well-manicured fingernails with no polish paint the picture of a woman taking care of herself. The nose job, the breast implants, which they believe were from 1983 or prior, suggests someone who had spent years and considerable means to achieve. These types of procedures were not cheap. They're not cheap now, nor were they readily available during that time frame. These are the aspects that make it difficult for me to assume she was a sex worker. I'm not sure that I associate well-manicured fingernails and prior cosmetic surgery with women who travel from truck stop to truck stop looking to make money. That is a difficult and transient lifestyle, and it's rough on the women living it. The surgeries that Julie Doe would have had by the time of her death, and the hormone treatments, they wouldn't have been cheap or done quickly. 
Now, I guess it's possible that it was all done prior to her having maybe fallen on hard financial times, but that's just supposition. Still, these are all possibilities that we need to think about because we can't assume anything. So I'd like to, I'll start out with a location, I guess, and ask you what the location where she was found um, tells you about the perpetrator, if anything. Like, do you feel like he would have had some knowledge of the area based on where she was left? Detective Sergeant Tamara Dale. Actually... It's a very transient area. Um, it's near roadways that run all through the state of Florida. If you look at it, it's near I-4, uh, Highway 75, 3327. Uh, present day, 75 is a, is a huge human trafficking corridor. I don't know if it was in 1988, uh, but there's, there's truck stops along that route. So even though it's in the middle of nowhere, really, mm. uh, there's woods in the middle of nowhere, but it's very close to all these highways that run throughout the state of Florida. So it could be someone very close to the area with an intimate knowledge because it's in the middle of nowhere, or it could be someone who is literally just passing through the area. It's one of the things that makes it so complex. Yeah, it is. It's a difficult case. I I feel for you because there's so many possibilities. Um well, I wanted to ask you about the report. I wasn't sure when I read it. Um, as far as the pantyhose, was she wearing a full pair of pantyhose or was it just the tops that she had worn and they were rolled down? Yeah, it was just the, the top. Okay. I wasn't quite sure and I wanted to make sure because I guess the fact that those were rolled down, yet it describes the skirt as being down about her legs. Does that suggest to you that um, that they didn't get that way from being dragged because the the skirt itself was kind of protecting the, the, the pantyhose top from being, um, you know, sometimes when you drag up a body, the, the undergarments are rolled down just from the act of doing that. So do you think that the skirt would have, the way it was found, protected the undergarment from being rolled down like that? I really feel like it looked like more than a person pulled them down. Okay. Someone. Um, now, that's not conclusive. Of course, it could have been from the body being dragged occasionally, when someone decomposes, I've actually seen that from the body bloating. I've seen uh, even jeans that are buttoned uh, become unbuttoned and go down their body. Mm. So that's a possibility as well. Huh. But it, it, to me, it looked like something that was pulled down by a person. Of course, I don't know that for sure. Right. Okay. Yeah, I hadn't even thought about the decomposition aspect. You, I'd never yeah. heard of that. That's definitely, again... It unless you've seen it. Right, point. yeah. And God uh, forbid, I wouldn't want to for sure. Um, no. Okay, so you don't have listed cause of death, which, again, is another thing that just causes you to have a lot more, you know, you have to consider all different possibilities. What are you in your head, like, based on what you know, um, what possibilities are you considering? I mean, if, are you thinking something like asphyxia or drug overdose? What are the things that you're thinking of? Because you can rule out what knife injury or gun or, you know, what are what are the things that are... Yeah, there was no trauma to the body. Uh, meaning knife injury or a gun, like like you said, or broken bones, anything like that. So one would presume it would have to be something like a drug overdose or strangulation or asphyxia, something like that. Of course, I can't say that conclusively either because the medical examiner can't. But uh, if there's no injury to the body that they could find, probably wasn't a, a gunshot wound or a knife wound or... Yeah, there wasn't any broken bones for sure. Right. And have you personally or ever heard of or encountered any, like, manual strangulation where the hyoid bone was still intact? 
It's rare, but but it does happen. I've heard that it does happen. Yeah. Okay, so even that's a possibility. The only thing I think about with the drug overdose is that if that's the case, and if someone, like you said, and that's another possibility, did pull down the underwear, then either one of two possibilities is that the drug overdose occurred in mid some sort of possible sexual encounter, or that was staged later on, you know what I mean, to make it look like in a sexual encounter. Because if it was a drug overdose and her clothing is displaced, that sort of means it would have had to, the overdose would have happened in mid, you know, um, encounter or afterward, wouldn't you think? Yes, I would think so. Okay. However she died, I I don't think that she um, got out there where she's at, I don't think she got out there naturally, which makes me think I don't. I don't think she died naturally. Right. Uh, you know what I mean? Because she was where she was at on 474 was exactly, I think, three miles from any any other road. It's really in the middle of nowhere. When I say that, I really mean it. Mm-hmm. And I mean, what person would be just walking down that road because no cars were found, no abandoned cars or disabled vehicles? Why would she be walking out there? And let's say she started to feel bad because she was going to have a heart attack or something. Right. She was like 30 feet off the roadway. You know, who walks 30 feet into the woods to pass away naturally? Right, right. It definitely Even if she died naturally, I, I think for sure someone put her body there. Right. And, and I actually, I did speak to um, the man that found her. I tracked him down and spoke with him. And he, oh, yeah? he said that um, you wouldn't have even seen her on... Um, if you were driving, the only reason he saw her is because he got out of the car looking for that cypress wood. You know, she was far oh, enough yeah. off. He had no, I, I firmly believe she would still be there today, oh. most likely. Awful. And I've, I've been out to the scene. I took a little trip. I like to do that if I can, if it's possible. And it is kind of, you know, he told me, because he worked uh, at one of the mines at the time, that it was traveled, but it was a lot of truckers. You know, it was a lot of people that knew that, you know, that would travel back and forth through there. Although he did say it was close enough if someone, God forbid, did have a body in their car and was trying to get rid of it, they would have maybe turned a couple turns and then been out there and done it. So it just, like you said, it makes it more complicated because there's so many possibilities. Um, oh, so toxicology, did they, were they able to do any toxicology back then when she was found, or was that not a possibility because of the decomposition? You know, I don't recall. I could look back at the report, but I know that there was either they couldn't or there was nothing in her system. I know for sure they, they didn't find anything or they, did, or they couldn't do it. I just don't recall which one. And but I assume they probably couldn't do it, knowing right. what I know about the state of the body. And then now, even with technology, there's nothing that you think could be done. In the, although I guess it doesn't matter. It's not going to further the case any now that I'm thinking about well, it. Well, now, mean, um, her, they, you know, the body's in it. It's bones. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so the color likeness that was done of her for the Facebook page, um, I'm not sure if it's just the way I'm looking at it. It appears to indicate that one of the front teeth was slightly discolored. Is that just, is that something intentional or was that just the way it was drawn and you have no indication that that was the case? That was just something the artist did or an accident or whatever. All right. Just wanted to make sure because that would stand out if that was the case. So, um, now have you, with your investigation, I I read about the isotope testing, which is fascinating and that the fact that she may have been from South Florida, um, have you has your investigated um, investigation located any doctors or that perform those type of procedures in and around that particular area where she may have been in the early 80s well uh, yeah good good luck with that the problem <laughs> with that um, is 
course, that was paper records back then. Mm. And a doctor who was practicing then would be over 100 years old now, probably, or 90 years old, mm. uh, with paper records that don't exist anymore. So uh, we've heard of some doctors. We've heard of the names of some doctors who, have, who perform, you know, surgeries. Yeah. But, I mean, they're long dead and gone, and where are their paper records is the problem we've run into. And to be clear, we don't know um, how much surgery she had. All we know for sure is the breast implants. Mm-hmm. We don't know if she had anything else because of the decomposition of the, of the body. And the rhinoplasty is a possible rhinoplasty, or you're fairly sure about that? Uh, we're sure of that, yeah. Okay. Jobs, they're sure of that. And then the based on the injury, she did have a cheek issue does it look like she also had some facial injuries in addition to the um rhinoplasty or do you believe it was all from the nose job you know there were some healed uh cheekbone injuries but those were healed so it didn't happen at the time of her death okay and rib there was one i think in a toe or something so she had some other minor injuries or maybe not so minor with the rib um at some point but were healed or healing at that time right Uh, hmm all right, so in one of the articles that I read, there was mention, uh, at least the possibility, at least it was a possible theory at the time, based on some of the other people that they interviewed, that she could have been a sex worker working, um, you know, and right, And I even asked the gentleman that I spoke to, were there any local truck stops where, you know, he told me there was one in Haines City. Is that still a possible theory? Is it something that you have in any way ruled out, or it's just one of the possibilities um, that you have to keep in mind? One of the possibilities is... There's no evidence to say she was or wasn't. I think when people hear her story, um, mm-hmm. myself included sometimes, you know, we just, based on where she was found and how she was found, that her skirt was pulled down, people, they start to draw their own conclusions and theories, and some people say, well, maybe she was with a, a guy and then he found out what equipment she had and right. he got mad at her. Do you know what I mean? Yep. But, of course, we don't know that to be the case. Um, or sometimes when a female, I call a female because I know that's what she wanted to be called, or I assume it is, you know, when a female's body is found out in the woods and and is never identified, this probably was a prostitute. But we're just making assumptions. Um, There's no reason to think that she was or was not specifically. We don't know that. Um, And it was an area well-traveled, like I mentioned, to begin with, and Mm -hmm. there are truck stops and truckers who go through that area. But... We don't know that for sure, of course. Yeah. And she did, you know, based on the surgeries that at least that you believe she had and the fact that she had um, well-manicured nails. And so she had some means at some point. It doesn't like it's not like she presents more as someone who was a sex worker. In fact, to me, it may tip the scale a little bit more in the other direction where she was a could have just as easily been a transgender woman living and passing as a woman, you know, and not even because I had thought about I put some feelers out because I I have friends in the gay community. And I thought, well, let me see people that I knew that hung out at the Parliament House back then and and put some feelers out that way. But, you know, I know just from personal experience, because I worked in a um, hair salon and so did my mom and my sister. We had a large community of gay and lesbian. But there weren't a lot of transgender people within the community. And even now, sometimes they are on the outskirts, you know, they're not um, as welcome as they should be in in these groups. And so it's just as equally a possibility that she was just living as a woman as her as a gender that she was at the time and, and would have been going to straight bars. So she wouldn't have even been associated with gay bars. So those are other things that you have to possibilities. I want to make sure I outline all of them in the podcast so that everyone will be looking not just in one area. 
Um, yeah, I, I, like you said, it's just as possible that she was would have presented as a very well put together woman. Like you said, manicured nails. I assume breast implants. They're not cheap now. I don't. Mm-mm. I don't that they would have been cheap in the eighties. Uh, her hair was was dyed. Uh, she had had some dental work done. Like you know, her teeth were well taken care of. Mm-hmm. So, no reason to think that she couldn't have been very presentable uh, woman. Like you just said, right? No reason to think at all. Okay, so the one one last thing, or one of the last two things I want to ask you about is the is the early investigative lead that they had with the with the roommates, the Jay and Bubba situation. Um, and the reason why I'm asking you is because it was a bit confusing. The reports were confusing, and I, not the least of which was a problem with the fact that one apparently a nickname was involved, where you have two roommates maybe being called the same thing. So um, basically, we're talking about where there was a woman who. Um, recalled a man trying to buy a beer for a woman that matched Julie Doe's um, description. And and it sounded like basically an attempt to pick up this woman. And the man was tracked down, and he said that the woman in question was a former co-worker named Cheryl. But when she was questioned, she said that she had not been into the gas station on that day in question, and that was not her. Um, and this gentleman that was tracked down, he mentioned to two different people that he had actually found the body um, of a dead girl and that she looked like a friend of his. So where I stop right there is, did anyone ascertain how he even knew what the dead woman looked like? I think he just said that um, no, that some de- he was driving down the road and some deputies told him there was a woman in the woods, which now, of course, 30 or whatever, 40 years later, whatever it is now, I can't prove or disprove that. I, I can't, the deputies would never remember, you know, did they tell some guy driving down the road that there was a woman's body in the woods? Right. It doesn't sound likely. No, right. um, I can't go back and and ask each one of them, find all of them, some of which are deceased, and say, hey, do you remember 40 years ago, 30 years ago? Right, Um, right. I guess... Did you say this or not? Yeah, yeah. Because that's the thing, is that there were a couple uh, problems with their, all three of their, I mean, Cheryl says she did not, she wasn't the woman so my question is uh, do you feel like these people are ruled out as suspects i guess is my question well um i'm not totally convinced about about bubba okay you know he does seem rather suspicious i think yeah okay well i'll leave that that's enough said i'm going to explain it in a way that's i I don't use last names or anything like that but i'll I'll explain it as, as much as i can as from the report and um just that there were some questions and the one scenario that here's that i that that falls in line with the problem of the transgender issue is let's say it wasn't cheryl that was at the spur station that night and it was julie doe and let's say she drove off following a male that they had met up and followed him somewhere else I'm not sure how easy it was to get proper ID back then for transgender people in 88, like a social security card or a driver's license or a car registration with their post-transition gender identity information. You know what I mean? So Julie could have not even had female identification. Her car, if she had one, we don't know, would have been re- could have been registered to a male, and she could have still had a male social security and still... Um, a male driver's license because even nowadays I, I researched it and it's there's a lot of hoops to jump through to get the proper documentation so <clears throat> I guess my question is if it's in the hypothetical let's just say <clears throat> when Julie went missing she did have a car wherever it was whether it was associated with this spur gas station incident or not if she had a vehicle and it was still registered to her previous male name 
or her driver's license or any of that, it would be almost impossible to link any abandoned vehicle that they found at that time with Julie Doe, wouldn't it? If she owned a vehicle it, even? It would. Uh, well, the problem with that being, now the de- detectives did look at the time back in 1988 in the area for abandoned vehicles, disabled vehicles, um, but they were looking for ones owned by a woman because remember we thought for until from 1988 till 2015, we thought she was biologically female. Right. Uh, until DNA proved otherwise. So in, in NCIC and, and everything else, she was entered in as a deceased biological female. Right. That's what we were looking for. That's what the, the detectives were looking for. Not transgender, not male. You know. So even if they had found a, a, a car... Um, now, of course, granted, a car could be registered to a male, but, but a female could have been driving it. Right. You know what I mean? But mm-hmm. they were looking for a missing female back then in 1988, not a male. So that may have thrown them off. And I don't recall from the report, I think they found one uh, car at the Citrus Tower, I think, that was abandoned. But they, it was registered to a female, but they located her. She was okay. Mm-hmm. I think that was all that they found in the area anyway. And it could have even been a vehicle in the Orlando, for all we know, because she didn't right. necessarily... Right, yeah, who knows where she, where she came from or how she got there. Yeah, and, and I don't suppose there's any way now to track down a list of van, abandoned vehicles from 88, right? That's not something that's kept on anywhere? I, yeah. And yeah I've, I've had difficulty getting uh, reports from much more serious crimes from 1988, much less abandoned vehicles, yeah. Gotcha. I did some research about DMV information in Florida on gender change requirements, and I learned in a notice dated 2011 that prior to that, customers requesting a gender change on their license or ID were required to provide documentation that reassignment surgery had been completed. In 2011, changes were instituted that aligned more with the U.S. Passport Agency and required an original statement on office letterhead from an attending medical physician treating the patient. In that case, the letter requires language that states that the patient is undergoing appropriate treatment for gender transition. I also found some current statistics that reflect the burden and cost of these document changes. The 2015 U.S. Trans Survey suggests that only 11% of transgender people who were surveyed had their affirmed name on all of their government-issued IDs. 35% of those said they were unable to pursue a legal name change because of the cost. And of the respondents who had legally changed their names, 34% said that they had spent over $250 to do it. And these are more current-day statistics. Julie Doe would have had even more obstacles in 1988. These roadblocks play into things like housing insecurity and unemployment. To say nothing of the discomfort that I am certain one feels having to stand in front of a DMV worker or someone helping you get your social security card changed when you really need these documents and the person behind the counter is staring at you judgmentally. This is the kind of thing that I meant when I told you at the outset that I believe our Julie Doe had endured things that most of us have never endured. Her life was probably a little bit harder and her victories a little bit harder won. Here's the part of the season where I summarize what we do and don't know. I want to start with the roommates, Jay and Bubba. Jay says Bubba, quote, brought a tall, blondish-haired girl home with him on one occasion, approximately one month prior to the body being found, but he wasn't sure of the name James gave him, possibly Cheryl. 
Right after this, the detective went to see a woman that he knew named Cheryl that, quote, fit the description of the dead female. When the detective questioned Cheryl about having been the woman at the spur station who was approached by a male a month prior, she said, quote, she was not the same girl, nor had she been to the spur station during that time. She did say that she knew James for about five years, but she knew him as Bubba. Then she mentioned that she had gotten a strange call from Bubba, where he seemed upset and told her that he found a dead girl that looked like her. He told her he had found that dead girl on 474, right where she was found. Unfortunately, it doesn't appear that the detective asked Cheryl if she had ever been to Jay and Bubba's house. That seems like a glaring omission. Had he asked, we might have a bit more clarity, because Jay said Bubba brought a female matching Cheryl's description to their house on one occasion. But here's the thing. What if that female that Bubba brought to his and Jay's house wasn't Cheryl? What if that female is our Jane Doe? According to Jay, that occasion when Bubba brought a female matching that description to their home was about a month prior to being questioned by police, which falls into the time frame when Julie Doe was left on the side of the road. There were a lot of questions that went unasked by the original investigators, questions that would need to be asked before Jay and Bubba could be ruled out as suspects on this case, as far as I'm concerned. To me, there are too many red flags in their stories, inconsistencies, not the least of which is how Bubba knew what Julie Doe looked like the day after she was found, when that information does not appear to have been disseminated by the police to the media. It seems like the only way Bubba would have known that is if the police at the scene told Bubba and Jay's friends what she looked like and they went over to Bubba and Jay's house and repeated that information. If that's the case, what we probably need to do is track down those friends and ask them what they remember being told. Bubba told two people he had found the body, Betty at the spur station and Cheryl. I think that it strains credulity that both of them would have somehow been mistaken about what he said. Bubba told police what he said was, quote, the body of the girl that was found in the woods looks like his friend Cheryl. How does he know that? How does he know that when Julie's body was decomposed such that it is unlikely anybody would be able to look at her and somehow ascertain much about her physical description other than her hair? Even if Bubba found the body first, I don't expect he would know that Julie Doe looked like Cheryl. When you look at cases like this from a distance after a great many years, things like what happened, why, and when are important. The detective only went to speak with Cheryl in the first place because she was known to law enforcement already, and she matched the description of the person that Jay had given them. I've since pulled up her record, and she's got a fairly extensive prior criminal history. Battery, DUI, mostly misdemeanors. But the point I'm trying to make is that we don't even know if the female with the blondish hair that Bubba brought to Jay's house was Cheryl, because nobody thought to ask any of them. Bubba knew Cheryl. They worked at the same place for a time period. It's not clear whether Jay knew her at all, even though he worked at the same place, but she may have been gone from her job at the country club when he started. And that's another detail that was left unanswered in the report. The detective did not make a notation of Jay's start date with the employer. He just said that he currently worked there. 
Despite all this, Cheryl insisted that she was not the girl at the Spur gas station that Bubba had encountered about a month prior to Julie Doe's body being found. I tend to think that Cheryl was the woman in the Spur gas station incident for a couple reasons. First, the car descriptions generally matched. Betty had described the female that she encountered as driving a dark sports car, possibly a Triumph, away from the Spur gas station and possibly following Bubba in his vehicle. Cheryl drove a blue MG. If you look up 1980s models of both the Triumph and the MG, they do look quite similar. But most importantly, Miss Betty had said that the woman from the incident told her that she worked at the Orange Lake Country Club. And we know that's where Cheryl worked. I think it's fairly safe to assume that the woman Betty encountered was Cheryl, and that Cheryl, for whatever reason, didn't admit to having been at the spur station that evening. I'm not quite as comfortable saying that the guy in that incident was Bubba, because Miss Betty kept calling him Jay. Maybe the physical description given by her ruled out Jay, but since I have no description for him, I can't. What I can say is that even if Cheryl is the woman in the Spur gas station incident, that doesn't mean that the girl Bubba brought home, the one that Jay mentioned, was Cheryl. The report said that the name could have possibly been Cheryl, according to Jay, but We don't know if he came up with that name independently or if the officer said something like, could it have been Cheryl? And Jay just said, it could have. There's enough information that I can probably rule Cheryl in as the woman in the spur station incident. I don't think there's enough information to rule our Jane Doe out as the woman that Bubba brought home. I hope that I've explained that part to you guys so you can understand it because I will admit it was a hot mess to get through. Now here's what we do know. Julie Doe was between the ages of 22 and 35 when she died, according to her NamUs profile. Estimated date of death, the beginning of September 1988. Police report information puts the approximate year of her birth from 1956 to 1964. Her waist was around 26 inches, height around 5'9 to 5'11, and her weight between 150 and 180 pounds. She's being described as having a slim build. Her hair was originally brown, and had been dyed blonde. Her breast surgery was likely done sometime before 1983 because the implants found with her body were discontinued around 1983, which was about five years prior to her death. Police believe that her procedures were most likely performed in New York City, California, Miami, Atlanta, or New Orleans, based on the fact that that's where they were most readily available at the time. There are strong indications of a nose job, and she had probably been on hormone therapy, for a few years. If you knew any physicians who treated patients for these procedures during the 1970s or 80s, or folks who knew people transitioning during this time, this would be an opportunity to share Julie's case with them. She was likely from South Florida, and somehow she ended up in Claremont, Florida. Maybe she was part of the Orlando, Florida gay community. Look up Julie Doe's Facebook page and you can find facial image drawings that might help refresh your recollection of what she may have looked like around that time. But it's also quite possible that she didn't have much to do with the gay community at all. Even now, the LGBTQ community and certain factions of the feminist communities aren't always as quick to surround the transgender community in their loving embrace. But in 1988, it was even worse. In the 80s and 90s, my mom worked in a hair salon, and so did I. We had a lot of friends in the gay community, and We even personally knew quite a few drag performers, but transgender individuals were on the fringes. Many of them, then and now, 
prefer to live fully as the gender they identify with. And in doing so, sometimes people don't even know that they are transgender. In that case, our Julie Doe might have lived an average life as a woman who dated men and went to straight bars, if she frequented bars at all. What I'm trying to illustrate here is the fact that there are so many possibilities, and we need to consider them all. Some people might remember Julie Doe as a male, perhaps someone who left home as a male and never was seen again. On the other hand, there were probably people who only knew Julie Doe as a female, and she went missing from their lives as a female. Every part of her journey is important, because people from all of it may be able to recognize her. Based on when her breast implants were discontinued, I think we can extrapolate that she had been living as a woman for at least four or five years, and maybe a bit longer at the time of her death in 1988. It's also noted that she had multiple healed broken bones, including perhaps a rib, toe, and cheekbone, which indicate an injury or maybe even an assault at some point. If you were a member of the LGBTQ community in Florida at the time, and remember someone who matches Julie Doe's description, perhaps someone you knew who suddenly disappeared, you might have important information. If you lived in the Claremont area or surrounding areas in 1988, and remember a woman fitting Julie's description who suddenly disappeared, or you remember any suspicious incidents around September of 88, particularly around the areas of County Road 474, 33, and 27, you could have important information. And if you lived in that area or surrounding areas and knew or met any females who matched Julie Doe's description, you might be able to help. If you believe that you have any information about Julie Doe, her disappearance, or the circumstances surrounding her death, please contact the Lake County Sheriff's Office at 352-343-9529. Ask for Detective Sergeant Tamara Dale and tell her that you have information about her Julie Doe case. I really like any time this case gets exposure or any of our cold cases because that's what they need. It only takes one person to recognize or think they recognize the person and call in a tip and, and, and identify her because we really have two issues here, first and foremost being to identify who she is and then find out why she, you know, ended up out there the way she was, but probably can't do that until we identify who she is. That's the first step. And it makes it more complex, of course, because of her transgender. Who knows if her family even knows that she transitioned even to the point that we know she did with the breast implants. Mm -hmm. So her family may think she's still 100% male. That may be who they're looking for and who they reported missing. And meanwhile, we're looking for, you know, the composite sketch that you see, someone with breast implants and a nose job. And so they may have reported basically one person missing, and we're looking for someone who looks and is completely different. Julie Doe deserves to have her name back, the name that she chose, the name that made her feel like who she really was. But we might need to learn the name she was born with in order to make that happen. I hope that we can do that for her. I ran across this poem online recently. It's written by Ruth Spacht, and I'd like to end Julie Doe's story with it. Am I my sister's keeper? I'd better be. What benefits my mother, niece, daughter, and the neighbor lady will also benefit me. Her working conditions, how much she earns, 
her crises, her problems, are all my concerns. Her children are my children. Her yearnings are mine. A Christian sharing of the burden all along the line. A cheerful encouragement of the flowering of the vine. Am I my sister's keeper? I'd better be. What benefits my mother, niece, daughter, and the neighbor lady will also benefit me. I'm gonna ask you to look away. Thanks, guys, for listening. I appreciate all of your kind words, reviews, and support. As always, you'll hear me next season. Bye-bye. Life I have isn't what I'd seen. The sky's not blue and the field's not green. are gray and the nights are black